real estate investing is changing, but there are people evolving and thriving. In this podcast, we'll listen to their stories and hopefully learn from them. I am dedicated to creating a life where I could create multiple passive income and doing something I love along the way. To me, the most important part is doing significant work and create great relationships along the way. For those that want to invest in passive income multifamilies, email me at abio at abiobiestatos.com. My name is Abio Biestatos. I am a real estate investor and entrepreneur, and I want to help you live the real estate life. Welcome to the Real Estate Life Podcast. Welcome to the Real Estate Life Podcast. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Yeah. Mark, so you're my first financial planner I have on the show, and I'm really excited about that. Um, it's, it's something that financial education, for some reason, I don't know why it happens, but um, it, it tends to lag in our, in our high school and junior high education. And what I found is that financial education tends to typically happen from in college or, or parents that are highly educated financially and they pass it on to their children. That's something that I experienced in my life. And uh, I feel like uh, you could give uh, the listeners a lot of advice on this type of financial education. And uh, by the way, I love the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. I love that name. Well, thank you. Yeah, I believe that average is in debt up to your eyeballs. Um, all your money's trapped in your home equity drywall, and you maybe have a little four hundred one k that you're slapping. Your hands are slapped anytime you try to get the money out. So yeah. that that's average. I don't want to be average. I want to be awesome if I can yeah, help it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you're right. Yeah. Why maybe not? like you, and maybe like most of our audience listening. I didn't grow up learning about money, um, and I certainly didn't have a, uh, a focus on what would happen in the midst of a major worldwide multi-year pandemic and what to do in that, right? My parents didn't teach me that growing up for sure. So what does your money do when it goes through such gyrations we've seen in the last 20 years? I mean, we've had a major market crash uh, three different times just since the year 2000. Yeah. And you know that sweeps into it real estate, it sweeps into it bonds, certainly the stock market. Crypto has dropped 60%, some of it last year. Uh, so, you know, where is the right place to keep our capital and cash so that we can do what we want it to do for us and we can live a, an abundant life, not just one living out, out of fear of the next, next person sneezing on my money and losing half my life savings? That doesn't seem yeah. like yeah. Uh, sanity to me. It seems insane, but that's the way the world has been running since you and I were in diapers, yeah. I guess. Um, yeah, right or wrong. Yeah, I feel like if you don't get this financial education, every cycle wipes you out and you have to start all over. But it doesn't seem to happen to a certain percentage of financially educated people. Um, and I lived that myself in the 2008 market, uh, a financial crash. You know, I just got into real estate at the age of 25. I was super excited. I started making my money. I had a three-year run. We got, I got into the market three years before the 2008. And I had a great run. And then reality hit. And I was 25 year old, no financial education. I thought that world was going to continue, and the reality hit. And my financial education started after 2008. I, I, I said, "This will never happen to me again." What happened? What is it that I did not see? And it so happens that all the financial educated people knew this was happening, knew it was going to happen, uh, even though the big banks, uh, you know, a lot of them, you know, just were pushing these credits, but. Um, a lot of colleagues of mine that I had a lot of respect for that were financially educated, they gave the warnings. They, they exited before all this happened. So 
you know, where are we now? It's very interesting. It's very tricky. Um, what's your take on the 2022 outlook and towards 2023? I know it's a tough question. It's a, it's a, it's a crystal ball. You're going to have to pull out now, but yeah. um, give me your insight uh, or what advice you're giving your clients for financial planning in these crazy, crazy markets. Well, my my crystal ball, unfortunately, is on a shipping container, you know, uh, <laughs> off the port of LA. And so I don't have it right now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, no, no, without knowing the future, like, uh, like uh, who is it? Niels Bohr said, uh, prediction is very difficult, especially when it involves the future. Uh, so given all that, uh, what can we say is true? Well, um, I don't think volatility is done. You know, we we just went through a major market gyration in 2020. We saw a wild swing to the up in 21. Um, the one of the uh, uh, pet uh, uh, who's it uh, Tudor Jones just said that all of the inflation hedges that worked in 21 will be a failure in 22. Uh, that would include equities and crypto. Do I ha- do I know what will happen? No, I don't. Uh, but I can say that. Like you said, uh, sometimes the the best horse in the race last year will um, break its leg this year, and we've got to continually ask ourselves what has stood the test of t- time, uh, and what is it we want our money doing for us. I think if I was to to give a hopeful, optimistic view of the future in the midst of that kind of volatility and turbulence, um, I would say the best hope I see is that people are starting to say. Uh, enough's enough. I'm tired of putting all of my money in the hands of some other guy or gal who may not have my best interest at heart. And they're saying to themselves, I'm ready to try try it myself. I'm ready to take on this money thing, to not be scared of it, and to become my own money guru. I, I think know. a lot of people um, have given away their power and have given away their authority over their own money to some guy or gal behind a desk and that could be an investment advisor or it could be a commercial lender. And they've given away their authority and their power on money and they're slaves, all right? They're slaves to somebody else's whims. Either you're in control of your money or somebody else will be in control of your money. So what, uh, and, what would be your first um so what would be your first advice to someone that uh, decides to take control of their money and uh, I know it's a very broad question. I 100% agree with you. And that same, same thought that you just explained is what happened to me in 2000. I'm like, that's it. I, I need to figure this out, learn, and start investing back in myself. Tell me uh, what happened. Well, what, what was that like for you? What what happened in 2008? Uh, you know, it's you, your real estate's booming. Um, everyone's making money. It's easy to make money in real estate. I was a real estate appraiser, also flipping houses. Uh, and... As soon as that news started blasting out, everything halted. Zero. No request for appraisals, nobody selling a property. Everything just went still, stagnant, and it was just a standstill for a while. And then the standstill turned into a decline. Mm. So, you know, you're you're trying to scramble, you're trying to figure out where you're gonna do your money, what are you gonna do with your career, and um, and not being prepared for that type of situation. For me, it was more of that, not being prepared um, for for that that type of scenario even though it's a historical scenario but when you look back these scenarios have happened multiple times sure well and thank you for sharing that and and you're not alone myself and millions of others hundreds of millions of others went through terrible seasons like that in 2008 and 2000 was the 
chapter before, you know, with pets.com and Enron and, and all that. If you remember the tech bubble before that savings and loans crisis. And before that, um, you know, so the, the Iran contra deal and, and all the stuff that was going on with hyperinflation in the late seventies and early eighties, the point is, you know, the world will always throw us multiple curveballs that, um, surprise us. And so I'd say the first best step any of us can take is to really get clear on what we want our money doing for us, what we want our money doing for us. I think too often we're just sort of handed a bag of rocks when it comes to our finances, you know, like here's your 401k because you got your first adult job. Okay, fine. Throw that little rock in my backpack, right? Then somebody told you how cool Roth IRAs are. So you throw a little Roth IRA in your backpack. Then you get your little brokerage account. Then you get a little crypto because your buddy is doing it. Then you get that rental property. And, and before you know it, you just got this big old bag of rocks on your back. <laughs> and you're like, you're why do I have this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And none of it seems to be helping you. It's all holding you down. All right. Uh, and we never really sat and thought when, when my wife and I... Uh, she got her first full-time job. She got that 401k. They just sort of laid a binder down in front of her and told her to sign here. But did we ever really think about what that was doing for us? Case in point, um, most people, when I sit down and talk with them over Zoom or over the phone, we have meetings all across the country and we have one-on-one -on -one financial consultations with folks. It's it's usually a very wonderful, eye-opening experience. I feel like it's some of the best conversations you can have in life involve money. Why? It's not because money is so cool, but money allows you to explore and experience this grand venture called life. And you know, when I'm having these conversations with people over the phone or Zoom, um, I'm asking them questions about their 401k, and they're they're sort of surprised when they learn that 401ks are all going to get taxed in the future. And I'll say to them, I'll say, you know, do you believe, Mr. Client or Miss Client, do you believe that taxes will be lower or higher in the future? And Abiel, they, they all say taxes will be higher in the future. And then I'll say, well, what's your understanding of how a 401k is taxed in retirement? And they'll think, well, I don't, I don't really know. It, it, it's, isn't it a tax savings? Don't, isn't it tax deferred? And I'll say, you're right. It is. It's tax deferred. Now, what does the word defer mean? And they think about it for just a second. And they say, well, it means put off into the future. And then they realize it. They see, I can see it on their face sometimes. And they're like, oh no, <laughs> I've created a giant ticking tax time bomb where all of that money in that 401k is going to be exposed to taxes in the future when tax rates are likely going to be higher. And for most people, that's the moment they say, who taught me to do this? When was I told that this was the right way to go? And it honestly, it's just been sort of handed to you, right? Uh, we all just sort of been, it's always been told the best thing you can do is get a 401k. It's a surprise to a lot of people when they realize the 401k was created in 1980, which means it's so young, it's not even old enough to retire yet. <laughs> and, and no, by the time they, they figure that out, they're getting taxed. That's right. That's later. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So some some of the best conversations you can have with yourself or with your spouse or with a buddy or a partner is to say, what what are the attributes? What are the characteristics that you want your money to have? You know, um, if you could wave a magic wand and just be Pope of money for the day and could create a brand new financial vehicle, um, I'd be curious about your answers to this. I'll, be, I'll just spitball in here with you, a little creative thought exercise. Sure. like just. You know, we're going to be um, the you know pope of money, and you can wave your magic wand and create a brand new 
financial vehicle, and it can have any characteristic you want it to have. Um, what sort of things would you want your money doing for you if it could just you know be De- the unicorn? Definitely something that um, creates a monthly residual cash flow. Yep. Cash flow. Uh, something mm-hmm. that yeah, something that protects um, from high tax rate, uh, mm-hmm. where I could deduct taxes. Taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. On, where I could grow value with time by holding whichever platform or item that is, and with time, uh, I could. Yeah, create equity, uh, and at some point, easy to sell. Or mm-hmm. if I need to exit in an emergency, that I won't be penalized uh, yeah. that high. Liquid it, access mm-hmm, yeah, without correct, penalties. Correct. Good. Yeah, that, cool. That pretty much covers it. Love it, man. You know, I think there's some things out there that might fit that characteristic, huh? <laughs> but the reason why I start with function is um, we get so caught up in labels. Okay. Um, you know, your, my bias, your bias, all of us have a bias. When we start seeing things that look and sound and smell like that other thing over there, you know, uh, annuities, real estate, savings accounts, life insurance, hedge funds, all of those words instantly create an emotional reaction in most of us because of some experience we may have had, or some radio host we may have used to listen to, mm-hmm. you know, um, so I like to start with that conversation because it gets to the heart of what you want your money doing for you. And that's a simple thought exercise. Any person could pull their car over and just take five minutes uh, to start writing down some of the things yeah. you just said. Um, I would add a few of those uh, just to my own list. When I was thinking about this myself, you brought up um, capital appreciation. You brought up tax advantages. You brought up liquid access without penalty, um, cash flow. Those are great. Um, I would add to that maybe um, a protection against lawsuits, okay, um, and protection against market volatility. So I want capital preservation, not just growth, but I don't want to lose what I earned last year too. Uh, I want it to be tax-free when I get the money out. Uh, I want it to continuously compound every single year. Again, I'm I'm making this like, yeah, like yeah, perfect financial course. vehicle. So let's yeah, let's just grow yeah. that money at a competitive mm-hmm. rate. Even if I'm grabbing the money out, I want it to continue to grow as if I'm not touching that money. Um, I want to be able to leave it to any person I want without the government getting its hands in it. Um, I mean, we could keep going here. Yeah, uh, the list yeah, goes yeah. on and on. That's, but that's definitely a nice list. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how can we do this? And is this legal? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well... You know, in my experience, in my searching for my own story, I came out of school with about six figures of student loan debt, and I needed a way to pay off all that debt. And I also wanted to do it in such a way that didn't destroy my ability to retire someday. Because uh, I sit down with folks, and we're going through their account statements, and we're going through their, you know, their financial situation, and a lot of times they'll ask me a question like this: They'll say, "Mark, um, do I pay off all this debt?" Or do I save and invest? Do I get into real estate now or do I wait till I'm debt-free? Um, I hear that a lot and maybe you do too. But the, the, the answer I've come to now is do both. You can become your own source of financing and be the banker. That's better than being just debt-free. You know, I used to think debt-free was the best pathway, but now I know that you can become your own source of financing and fire your banker. And now you're actually 
being the bank that you were cursing uh, previously, you know? So for myself, it was a best, best case scenario because instead of paying off my debt as the banker for myself, I bought back my debt from my creditors, Sally May and the other student loan companies. I bought it back from them. And I use that now, I've used that now to accelerate my wealth creation. And then again, I've started to continually use my source of financing for myself to invest in real estate and um, my business, my family needs, whatever it might be. So, so, so it's a mindset shift. Yeah. So how did you create your own bank? But def- define that for me. It's, mm-hmm. uh, I, I just want the listeners to understand that process. That is a, it's sort of a mind boggling statement, isn't it? Yeah. So um, it's not like the banks you, you know about down the street. You know, it's not an FDIC insured bank. To get a true FDIC insured bank, you need about $100 million and about 10 or 15 years to get a bank charter. <laughs> so uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying everyone should go out and try that. Um, but of all the things in the financial universe, I was searching as I got my CFP, Certified Financial Planner designation, uh, I was looking at everything. I counted about 400 plus financial products, vehicles, strategies that you could put your money in. That'd be you know, real estate, uh, annuities, mutual funds, ETFs, crypto, the list goes on and on, right? Uh, and each one of those 400 plus can be combined together. So I could combine real estate with you know, equities and that's a REIT, a real estate investment trust, just for sake of example. So that's now hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of ways we can all put our money to work, which is why I think many of us just get overwhelmed and we just kind of bury our heads in the sand and, and think, well, it's too complex. I can't figure this stuff out. So for me, when I created my own list of like what I want my money doing for me, and it was very similar to the list you brought up, uh, plus some of the ones that I brought up, I thought to myself, all right, is there anywhere in the financial world that does what I want my money to do for me? without it being overly complex. And of all things in the financial universe, strange as it sounds, a modernized form of dividend-paying whole life insurance fulfills all the things that you and I just talked about. Mind-blowing to say it that way, but um, let me break it down before your listeners unsubscribe. (laughs) And then I'll talk about how it fits in with real estate, okay? And how I use it for real estate. So whole life insurance is 200 plus years of guaranteed growth. It grows guaranteed every single year. It has for hundreds of years in this country and beyond. Uh, And it just builds on itself on a guaranteed basis. You're going to have more this year than last year. Uh, It's not just life insurance. There's a living benefit, not just a death benefit. There's a pile of money or they call it a cash value that you're able to access with no penalty, like you said, no penalty anytime you need it. So it's accessible. And if we've designed it correctly, there's no taxes due when you access that money. So, you know, I just helped a guy earlier this week. He he grabbed $800,000 out of his policy, the cash value, and he put it to work in real estate investing. Now wow. that's pretty cool. Did he, have to, cool. did he have to beg a bank for that? No. What did he have to do? He, you know, submitted a sh- one sheet of paper with his signature at the bottom. And the two questions on that sheet of paper were, how much money do you want us to give you? And what bank account do you want us to put it in? (laughs) How big was the policy? Yeah. Well, he had had a little over 800,000 in cash value. 
Wow. So he's able to grab as much cash value as you have. You're able to borrow about 90% of it. Now that borrow word spooks some people. So I'll explain that next. Uh, You can borrow against the cash value of your life insurance, like a bank. Okay. And unlike a bank, you don't have to get approved by the lender. There's no credit check. There's not even a required repayment plan. You're able to repay that loan if you wish, but if you never repay the loan, it would just be deducted from the death benefit years later when you pass away. What is the now, what, rate on, on, on something like that? Well, um, give you an example. This guy, he plans to take the money out. He's putting it into syndications, LP, passive income, that sort of thing. So he's going to get the money back in about four years when they refi. Okay. And the APR, the annual percentage rate to borrow that money was 1.9%. Oh, Jesus God. Seriously? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why is that? Well, some insurance companies charge more than that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, but yeah. the companies that we choose charge a simple interest rate all year long. And I don't want to get too technical. I know it's a podcast right. and we're yeah. not looking at calculators right now, yeah. but yeah. in his case, in most cases, if it's a four-year loan, it's about a one to, you know, one to two percent. APR, which is phenomenal, but it's it's actually a bit better than that and quite a bit better. And let me explain. So when he borrowed his money out, the policy is called non-direct recognition. The loan itself, it's a specific kind of loan called non-direct recognition. The insurance company essentially does not recognize that you took that loan. So when you borrow against the life insurance policy, it continues to grow as if you hadn't touched the money. On the entire eight hundred thousand bucks, wow! Or whatever your particular cash value is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it I've is. Never heard that before in my life. It's. <laughs> it sounds too good to be true. To be honest, you know, when you first it hear really it, does. But let's stop and just think: Is there anywhere else in the financial universe that that lets you borrow against it and it keeps growing? Well, have you ever heard of a HELOC? Yes. Home equity. I'm sure you have. Yeah. yeah. Any kind of line of credit. Your home does not care if you have a mortgage on it or not, right? You can borrow against your house, the HELOC or a regular mortgage, and the Zillow doesn't care that you borrowed against your house. It's still growing. The house is still growing, even on the capital you borrowed against your house, right? Correct. Now, that's just like a whole life policy that has a non-direct loan, but there's one difference. Houses are not guaranteed to grow, right? You can go underwater on a on a HELOC and they can freeze your line of credit and they can force you to pay it off and they can term it out and the house can go underwater. Um, with life insurance, it's guaranteed to grow. So you'll never be underwater with life insurance loans. So it life is, insurance has never declined, even when correct. the markets crash. Correct. Yeah. It's not tied to the stock market. So it's yeah. it's actuarially, it's guaranteed by the insurance company to give you more cash value this year than you had last year. And they can't take away the right to borrow against the policy. So there's no banker in between you and your money. Um, So in this way, it's somewhat safer than say even a HELOC or a line of credit. Got it. That's pretty incredible. First time I ever hear this. Very interesting. So this is how you created your own loan. Yeah. Yeah, You created yourself as your own bank. Our story, and I'll keep it brief, was um, we first we used it for a couple of things that we needed to do. We bought a car with it. Why would we pay cash for a car? You know, when you pay cash for a car, you lose all that growth, right? Yeah, so correct. borrow against it. And why would we use somebody else's bank? You know, so we used our policy to buy a car. We went on a month-long trip to Hawaii. 
Uh, and <laughs> I'm not recommending, recommending no, everybody I mean, do I this. Mean, you're but, still going to enjoy life. You're still yeah, going to have yeah. some fun. Well, if we were going to go on yeah. vacation anyway, you know, um, the power of this is while we were on the sands of Hawaii, uh, we got a, a, a letter in the mail showing us the growth of our policy. And it was the same growth we would have had otherwise had we not gone on the vacation. So that was like a no guilt trip. But um, the real purpose of why we started it was not for the cars and the vacations. It was to help us pay off all that stinking student loan debt. Um, And then now we use it for real estate investing and we use it for other investments and business acquisition and, you know, marketing campaigns and our future, when our daughter's ready for college, we'll send her to college using the policies. Uh, Why would we use somebody else's bank? Why would we even pay cash? Because remember, when you pay cash for something, you're actually financing it from your future. When you pay cash, you stop growing that money forever. And that's a way of financing. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Now, what percentage of your personal portfolio are you invested in real estate? And and I want the listeners to know specifically which type of real estate are you invested in? Well, it's it's probably about forty to fifty percent, and we do a lot of um, syndication deals uh, with with our and we use our policies to put that money to work in syndication deals. I was telling you before we hit record, I'm really a lazy real estate investor. One, because my focus and my passion is this business. I love it. We work with a number of advisors and train the advisors. And I have colleagues that work across the country. So our focus, my attention is is money and helping people understand this world of money. I don't know what you know about real estate. And so I do know the power of real estate as a certified financial planner. Guys, listen to what Abiel is sharing with you because it's real and the tax advantages and the cash flow capacity any CFP that does not mention and on regular occasion recommend real estate i think is doing their clients a disservice because it's such a it's as old as the pyramids real estate is sure. yeah. uh, for building real wealth so um, everyone so definitely you, uh, look into real estate asset class are you, i know you mentioned to me you're in a couple commercial uh uh-huh. Are you, so, what type of commercial? Oh yeah. Are you uh, well, uh, my favorite one right now I can share uh, is a mobile home park that uh, that we put some money into a syndication deal, and nice. that one for for me has been really interesting because we've gone through a world where folks have been wanting to get into like you know they're looking at working class neighborhoods, um, and cash flows have been squeezed, on cap rates have been mm-hmm. squeezed, uh, oh, but yeah, mobile home time. parks are are one of those. Uh, uh, finite supply asset classes where they're not building a whole lot of new mobile home parks in the country. Uh, and a lot of mom and pops are selling those old mobile home parks yeah. with the yeah. broken street lights. And so the the deal that we recently have been uh, invested in got um, a ton of different mobile home parks. They've renovated them. They've laid the pavement. They've put in a pool and a playground and you know they've started collecting reasonable rent and so forth. And it's just the yield on those has just been phenomenal. And I awesome. love the ability to see those tax deducted every year as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, some of my listeners are multifamily investors <clears throat> that they own their own assets or they're raising capital or they're trying to get into the business. What? How do you underwrite your deals? Not just the deal itself, but I, I would say, how do you identify the sponsor or syndicator that you feel comfortable? Same way, like, someone would try to figure out is, you know, is Mark the person that's going to help me with this financial advice? Yeah. How do you, how do you do your research on the syndicators 
that you're looking to invest with as a limited partner, uh, as what you call a lazy investor. Yeah. Uh, how do you do it? <laughs> as a lazy by? investor, how do I choose which syndications to participate mm-hmm. in? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's the same. It's the same criteria I have for when I'm uh, training a new financial planning associate that works in our firm. Uh, there's three criteria that I look for in any syndicator: uh, humble, hungry, and smart. Hung, humble, hungry, and smart. And I'll kind of break that down quickly. I like that. Uh, but mm-hmm. humble, I I want them to be willing to say that they've been wrong or that they got a bad deal. I don't need them to sugarcoat like, and I'd be happy to go over some of the the considerations and downsides of the whole life insurance that we just went over there. Cause there are some, uh, cause I think anyone who looks at things only half full is missing something. Um, <clears throat> so humble, hungry. I want them out there working hard. I don't just want us, you know, a syndicator or a sponsor to be, you know, um, collecting checks and, and not doing any work. You know, they need to be out there making the deals happen. And then yeah, man, it is. It's not nothing passive about it, right? Uh, and then, uh, 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 and then finally, smart. And that, I put that into two categories. Smart is for me, like intelligent and critical thinking skills, willing to really analyze a deal, but also smart in that they're not doing stupid things that could land them in jail. <laughs> they're they're um, they've got high integrity. In other words, yeah. uh, so that's what I mean by humble, hungry, yeah. and smart. Yeah. I, I think that uh, to add to the word smart, I think it's very important uh, communication, uh, yeah. the communication between a syndicator and an there LP. Um, I found that a lot of syndicators assume that they don't need to explain everything in detail. Uh, some LPs don't care for it, but there's some that, you know, they do want detail. Mm-hmm. And uh, communication is a, is a key factor between that relationship. And I agree with you. There's mistakes that are going to be made in every project. It's it's you're naive to think that in a multifamily project you're not going to be making mistakes. Um, there's not going to be some loss of of money here and there. Uh, the overall outcome at the end should be successful. But there's things mistakes that are made along the way, and not being honest and not you know disclosing these things. So I, I do I do see what you mean with the concept of being humble. So mm-hmm. I do agree with those terms. And I'm also taking notes um, for myself. Yeah. Well, and, and I'd say it fits my world too. You know, I think the, the CFP world can sound like a kind of like an otherworldly alien class of people, like a, some sort of priest and, and lay people, whatever. Like uh, I, I just want to just dispel that myth right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the best financial planners will help you realize that you are your best money guru. Like I mentioned earlier, um, where you can help us know, we'll certainly help you find the hidden risks in your portfolio. Uh, like I was just on a call with a guy, he's been incredibly successful in real estate. He's about to get a $10 million buyout from his business partners. And he's going to go you know, live in the mountains and just enjoy the next couple of chapters of life. Um, but he and I were talking He'll about... Back. He'll be back. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, he, I'm like, what are, you, what are you going to do next? And he's like, I'm probably going to do some more deals. <laughs> so so uh, the, you're never out of the game, right? No, um, no. But the power there is just you know learning to think and listen carefully. I think the best thing that you can do, Abiel, and, and I can do as a certified financial planner is to say, all right, what is this person across the table from me really wanting yeah. here? Correct. And listening so well that you can understand what they said and what they're not saying, but they want to be saying. Yeah. Um, I think the, the best conversations in life are those ones that you're like laying out on the 
field of grass and you're mm-hmm. with your buddy mm-hmm. and you're talk- looking up at the stars and you're thinking about what the future holds. I feel like financial planning conversations could be like that if financial planners got out of our own way and stopped talking about how how our rate of return was on our portfolio last quarter. That's yeah. important yeah. and we get to that, but it's in in service of the heart and the goals that yeah. the person across the table wants to accomplish. You know, I, I think um, personality has a lot to do with the way people invest. Um, you know, finding that right instrument as an investment vehicle, it's hard to find, like your world is very complex for me and it's so many moving parts. Like you have my mind spinning uh, about that insurance loan and I don't have life insurance. I've always been not, it doesn't motivate me. But now that you created, you just created a motivation. I'm like, hold on, I can get a loan off my life insurance? Uh, now you just triggered something that I didn't know existed. Um, investing on paper wasn't motivating for me. I always felt like I'd be personally, I needed to hold the real estate. I need to see it. I need to grab it. I need to touch it. And that's how I found my happiness investing. Yeah. Um, and having been attracted to your industry, but you just dropped some knowledge on me. Now I'm like, I could get a loan on my life insurance like that. That's, that's amazing. So now you open my eyes to something else that, uh, I'm definitely going to want to consider um, anything that I hear close to a one point something interest rate on a loan, unheard of. So uh, that's a good financial education you just gave us. Um, Mark, um, hedge against inflation. What are you doing for yeah for this? Well, let me quickly say thank you for for saying all that. Um, and you know, once again, I'll just quickly mention while while we wrap up the life insurance, we can certainly spend more time talking about it. But um, be aware of people that you talk to. There are 400,000 life insurance agents in the United States, 400,000. That means one for every 800 Americans. And if there were 400,000 heart surgeons in the country, uh, would you just pick any of them? Probably not, right? If it was your heart, my heart, yeah. Yeah. So very carefully look for people who have expertise here. Uh, Case in point, the, the loan interest that you mentioned. There are several really big life insurance companies that charge 8% on your money and penalize you by reducing your dividends on the cash on the cash value when you borrow against the policy. That can wreck the growth and if you needlessly borrow from the policy you can make the policy lapse just because it was designed incorrectly or not managed well. So be very just I guess the 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 shortcut here the thing to remember is look for a bank on yourself professional. That is the credential or the phrase that I would suggest folks look for. Bank on yourself. Professionals have gone through rigorous training to make that like their specialty, their expertise. It took me about three years to really become proficient in the bank on yourself strategy and get that credential. So look for bank on yourself professionals. They'll make sure that you get the right companies, that it was designed right. So um, to your question about inflation, maybe all any, any comments on that before I brush off to your question you asked me a while back <laughs> <laughs> no yeah that's that's basically it i just uh you know some advice on on inflation right now it's at seven percent i think the last time i checked uh, correct me if i'm wrong yeah you're um, right and i know there's a lot of strategies you know we're, we're investing into multifamilies for inflation but in your world what would you suggest well you had uh, rod khalif on a while back too yeah. he was talking about yeah. how um and you mentioned it in a recent podcast solo cast that you did talking about how Cash flowing real estate is a great way to hedge against inflation. It is, as long as rents are allowed to be collected by our government. Um, and that's a big asterisk right now. 
um, for, for a lot of us right now in many markets. Um, but, uh, I would say, you know, combine two, two assets together, you know, there's peanut butter and jelly. They can go really well together. There's Batman and Robin. They go really well together. There's nitro and glycerin. They go really well together. Kaboom, right? Dynamite. Um, if you just have one asset, real estate, cash flow, real estate, it does some things really well. Cash flow, tax advantages. It's harder to get access to money if my money's tied up in a deal, right? We have to admit that. And um, you know, the 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 hedge against inflation is is there, but uh, there's some counterparty risk with if the government gets between you and your renters, it's going to be tricky to get that money and rent collected. So right. what can we do to take take the power of the nitro but add some glycerin? If we use a whole life policy designed the way we've been talking about here, uh, whole life insurance is tied not not directly to interest rates, but it's sensitive at least to interest rates. So if if inflation does seven year seven percent again this year or fifteen percent this year, is anybody here saying that it can't go to fifteen percent? It has before, right? Yeah. In 1980 and 1981, 82 was 15, yeah. 18. Whole life yeah. insurance times, in those yeah. years. Yeah, yeah. And, and most of the time, whole life insurance grows at a nice conservative middle single digit return. You know, nothing, nothing special, but it's predictable and it's guaranteed middle single digits. But in those years, in those 1981, 82, dividends on whole life insurance were in the double digits. They were keeping up with inflation and, and it's liquid and accessible money. So unlike real estate where you have to beg a banker, and by the way, there's a great quote by Mark Twain. Uh, he says, uh, it's a great quote. He says, Abiele says, uh, a, a banker is a fellow who will lend you his umbrella when the sun shines, but wants it back as soon as it starts to rain. Great quote, right? So in the world where we can't get money out of our real estate piggy banks, having a giant pool of contingency cash in the cash value of the life insurance policy makes you more resilient in the face of crisis, but even better, it makes you um, take advantage of opportunities. It makes you more competitive. Like when all the other sponsors and syndicators can't get access to money and you've got six or even seven or even eight figures of money, cash value sitting in your policies that you can tap for any purpose, you know, and there's deals to be made, right? You know, what kind of deals could you pick up in the midst of the next um, yeah. crisis, whatever it might Great be. Strategy. I like that. I like that. I'm going to have to, con- I'm going to have to speak to you about that after the podcast. I like, sure. um, Mark, you've been very educational. It's been a great time. I just want to have one last question. Um, what's your take on number? I would say it's the number one question. My friends and family asked me, um, should I buy a single family now? <laughs> to live in or to rent out? <laughs> to live in and rent out. <laughs> to uh, live okay. In. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, to <laughs> live I in. be okay. buying a single-family uh, property at this oh, in this man. market? This man, what, I want to hear your. Can you answer that question? Because because um, I I could probably speak out of both opinions here. What are your thoughts? I mean, I, my first question to them is: Do you see yourself living in that property in the next two or three years? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that you know, and, and even the past five years, do you see yourself living in that property? And you'd be surprised when I tell them five, they're like, ah, I don't know about five years. Uh, so it, that's usually, then I'll start going into it deeper there. And okay. So if you're not going to be there in the next five years, what if the, what if you buy at this peak price, mm-hmm. are you going to sell that property right. in five years? You know, do you think the market's going to stay this way? They pretty much answer their question. Uh, when, yeah. when you start asking them that reverse, 
What's your take on that? It's a great answer. Yeah. Well, I'll say uh, if it's if it's for the purpose of shelter, yeah, that's there's nothing wrong with getting the house that you're going to stick in for a long time. I think our grandparents bought one house, right? And now we buy five houses over our lifetime, on average, as uh, as the average American, five houses. And is that the statistics now? Yeah, See, I didn't yeah, know that one. yeah. Oh, over our lifetime, crazy. yeah, five different right. houses, and we keep a mortgage on it, and and we, um, you know, we, the average American in 1940, 11 cents on the dollar went to servicing debt, 11 cents. Now, according to the U.S. Commerce Bureau, 37 cents of our dollars go to debt. Wow. So if if time is money, what's 37% of your day? <laughs> right? Do you really want to buy at the peak price where you've got and everyone says, "Well, Mark, my interest rate is so low right now." Um, you know, interest rates on mortgages are so low, I can buy a big house. Well, why do you think we can buy a big house? Why are the prices so high? Part of the reason why prices are so high is because interest rates are unnaturally low. And if interest rates are about to go up, and I don't know what the future holds, I really don't. Um, if interest rates do go up, what happens to house prices? No one can buy that McMansion anymore when we've got a 10% mortgage or whatever, or even a 5% mortgage. Uh, and so home prices all come down when that happens. And do you want to be stuck holding that bag if you're going to move next year or two years from now? So I love your idea about five years at least, longer even. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. it. You know, it's... it's um... I'm surprised that we, it's true. I look back at my lifestyle and I mean, I'm in real estate, so I probably move more than the regular person does, but looking back, yeah, more definitely bought way more than five properties and I'm looking at my friends and family. Yeah. They pulled out. My parents been in the same house 30 years. Yeah, That's a whole yeah. different generation. Sure. Our generation yeah. is career driven. We're moving along. We're, we're mobile. We can work mm -hmm. from home. We can work from anywhere. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I agree with and that. And there's no judgment. It's just a matter of like, what do you want your money doing for you? You right. got to have that right. conversation with yourself, with your spouse. And if money is tied up in the drywall of one's house, that's, you know, in many ways, that's a zero interest savings account, you know, with no guarantee. Right. Um, so right. there's, there's downsides. You got to just ask that question before you pile in. Mark, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank you for all this yeah. financial education. I'm definitely getting in contact with you about that insurance policy. On, on life insurance. I'm really, really, really have my mind spinning on that. Um, Mark, where can listeners get in touch with you? Well, you mentioned the podcast at the beginning, so I'll mention it here at the end. Uh, if folks are looking for some financial clarity without the market madness, if they want some access to capital for their deals or for their real estate projects, uh, you can meet me. You can go to notyouraveragefinancialpodcast.com. That's not your average financialpodcast.com. Click on the button there. It says request a meeting. And we'll just have a 15 minute quick yeah, call and say hello. And, and I'll drop the link too. Mark, thank you. thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Life Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to reach out to me, please go to my website, www.abiobiesteros.com.